Uh, so I want to talk today about how media, cell phones, the internet, television, radio, are the most powerful force for social change the world has ever known. And what I have found interesting for the last 30 some years is that as powerful as it is, and as significant as it is, historians, I hope I don't offend anyone here, um, I, I, I'm afraid I offended Joe, Joe, uh, Joe Nye because um, he admitted to me that, that he had failed to, to write about the role of media in, in talking about soft power. So people even like Joseph Nye, um, who are famous for, for soft power, discussions about that, or Marcus Sen, um, who I admire enormously, and you know, who really became famous by saying that there's no famine in a country that has a free media elections. We really never study the media until just recently. And so it's kind of driven me a little crazy because I'm, I'm, I'm not a journalist, let me say, first of all. I'm, I'm a media activist. So I started Internews 31 years ago. It's grown and grown. We're now working over 90 countries. We have about 650 staff. And during this last 31 years, I've tried to convince the people who fund this work, policymakers and, and others, hey, this really matters. If you want to change history, media is what does it. And yet we get the media development sector, which we helped pioneer 31 years ago, gets half of 1% of all development funding. It's not recognized. I, I remember telling the head of the Foreign Relations Committee in the United States, his good friend of mine, Lee Hamilton, he said, you would never consider running your election campaign without a media strategy. But you're going to run foreign policy without a media strategy? And, and, and it's true. They just, it's, the Arab Spring has changed that. To some degree, people now recognize that at least social media matters. But there's a long way to go before, before policymakers and historians and political scientists fully understand that. So that's why I wrote this book. Basically, to, to show, to, to try to demonstrate that in most of the major historical events that we've lived through in our life, lifetimes, I'm older than most of you, so that encompasses a lot of you, the, um, the untold story behind the scene is that, that these events have been propelled by media activists over and over again. And we're seeing it today more than ever. The, the, the citizens' movement, I like to call it, is erupting everywhere. It's hard to mention a country that hasn't had massive demonstrations recently. And if you look at them, if you look at, take any of them, take uh, Brazil, this group called Black Ninja, a group of journalists, are the ones that have been propelling that. If you look at the Arab Spring, there were journalists who organized the April 6th movement in Egypt and organized the revolution in Tunisia. Um, even the second revolution or counter-revolution, depending on your political orientation in Egypt, had the one that produced 13, 14 million people in the streets, started by five journalists. In almost every case, journalists or media activists, and I'll distinguish those two in a second, have been at the forefront of this social change movement, this citizens' movement. Today, I'll I, I want to talk about different aspects of the way that media activism has been uh, important, or the way that media changes history. As conflict prevention, um, 
for democracy and governance, as a force for modernization, and just generally uh, for overall development, including women and environment and other things like that that I'll talk about. <coughs> let me start a little bit. Well, first let me define media a little bit, because um, talking probably uh, with, um, last night we had an official book launch for this book and got into a discussion about the difference between citizen journalism and, and journalism. And so, do you know Aiden White? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, Aiden, who connected me here with James, um, made a, a brilliant distinction, I thought. He said that people confuse freedom of expression with journalism. He said freedom of expression is not journalism. Journalism actually puts certain filters and limits on expression. Whereas, so a lot of what goes as new media, as social media, it is, are op-eds. They're basically expressions and not necessarily journalism. I'm talking about everything. So when I talk about media, I'm really talking about these devices we carry in our pockets and, and citizen journalism and professional journalism. And um, so the widest, the widest range of that. Historically, let me go back to where I got involved in this. I used to be, I, my, my, I really, as I said, I'm not a journalist. I was very active in the anti-nuclear war movement. I used to be national director of the peace movement in 1980 in the United States, 1981. And I partnered with a guy named Kim Spencer, a woman named Evelyn Messenger, because at the time we were using something some of you may have heard of these things called mimeograph machines. Amazingly ancient technology. You'd have to spin this wheel. It almost seems medieval now, doesn't it? Oh. So, it's a terrible process. I, I, you know, I wanted to modernize this political movement, this protest movement that was trying to stop nuclear war. That was through the anti-nuclear war movement. And there was this guy who was a television activist who does some amazing uh, stuff that broke a lot of barriers. And one of the things he and, he, he and Evelyn discovered was that satellite, communication satellites had just been put into orbit. No one had yet used them for broadcast. So they did an experiment on public television during Thanksgiving, the American holiday. And they linked together six different locales in the United States. There was a sharecropper family in Tennessee, and uh, some bikers in wearing their colors in, in Cambridge. There was an Air Force base in Nevada, and there was a Hunts Club somewhere that, you know, it was a nice, diverse mixture of America. And they linked them all together for the first time, interactive. And now, you know, now you do it with your cell phone. But back then, satellites were what cell phones are doing now. They're basically reaching vast new audiences in an interactive way, instead of the one the many. Now you, I mean, instead of the one the many, you now have many to many. But back then, you know, being able to connect audiences at a great distance was really a breakthrough. So they're communicating through a moderator sitting in Washington D.C. I think Mark Buckwall. And at one point, this biker sitting on his motorcycle, this is during the Vietnam War, holds up a beer 
and says, not too irrelevantly, but says, here's to America, may she one day be what she was meant to be. Which really pissed off this Air Force cadet in Nellis Air Force Base, who, and I'm not making this up, picks up his milk and says, here's to America, glory is what she was meant to be. <laughs> and they began to talk to each other. And they just left off the moderator. And nothing. And it's a simple thing, but at that time, it was a complete breakthrough that they could use this technology to have people talk to each other. And Evelyn says, holy shit, what if we did this with the Russians? <laughs> that, plus a, a Russian had the same idea, a guy named Joseph Golden. I want to give credit to both of them. They invented, invented something you probably recall called Tedenost, or space bridges. And the idea was at the height of the Cold War, I'm sure some of you have read about the Cold War. <laughs> the, uh, at the height of the Cold War, when we were <clears throat> six minutes away from nuclear annihilation and just terribly frightening time, much more frightening than today with all its terrorism, but it was much worse then, really. Um, the United States and the Soviet Union didn't exchange anyone. There were no cultural exchanges. Scientific exchanges had been frozen. Nobody visited each other's countries. It was two enemies facing each other and doing all the typical characterizations of the enemy that you see today between Sunnis and Shiites or between whoever it is. And so they decided to use this technology to link audiences in Russia and the United States so they could talk to each other. And they did the first experiment happened actually during the US Festival, Rock and Roll Festival. And a group in Moscow talked to you can see them on stage. They danced to the music. I, I love the irony of this. A group called Men at Work, the Australian group Men at Work, played and Russians danced to it in Moscow. And a Russian group called Arsenal, <laughs> great irony, played and, and 300,000 Americans danced. <laughs> the next year, they had we had these discussions between people, eventually astronauts talking to cosmonauts and veterans of World War II talking to each other. It was a tremendous breakthrough. And finally, and I should emphasize this because there's another thing historians miss. Historians will talk about the changes that happened in the Soviet Union as if Gorbachev initiated the whole thing. Came into power and he said, let's have perestroika and glass and everything kind of went from there. Well, very important, and I, I think Gorbachev's one of the really great transformative leaders of our time, maybe the greatest. But he, he was a product of forces that were already at work. We were already doing things, and not just we, I mean, there was a whole movement of people actually, interestingly, being led mostly by the inter Russian international, the state international broadcasting unit, whatever that was called. Most of them came out of there. But people were already experimenting, using the media to do things that eventually became known as perestroika and glasnost and openness and all that. Of, we did it during Brezhnev's time. By the time Gorbachev took power, uh, there was a show that was made between Phil Donahue in the United States and Vladimir Posner in Russia. Citizens talking to each other, being in audiences freely, without any censorship. And there was a debate in the Politburo that went on for a couple hours. Should they allow this to be broadcast? They couldn't reach a decision. I talked to the, the director of Soviet television. He said he went home that night, got filthy drunk, 
and decided to let the program go on the air on his own authority, not knowing what would happen to him because of it. And the next day, they, at the beginning of the, the first day of the 29th Party Congress, when Gorbachev took power, they had this program in which a couple hundred million people watched. There was no censorship. So they heard Americans saying, well, what about the gulags? What about Solzhenitsyn? And you know, the Russians typically would say, uh, oh, you know, one of the questions I remember they asked, they, had, uh, uh, they asked, what would, what would, if you visited America, where would you most like to go? And um, this one person mentioned town, oh, it's Oxford, come to think of it, Oxford, Mississippi. <laughs> and um, and said, so why would you want to go to Oxford? Did anybody know why they wanted to go to Oxford? It's interesting. Well, he said, because that's where Faulkner was born. And of course, the Americans said, who? <laughs> and, um, so you know, it was this amazing exchange, between, free exchange between people that people were not used to seeing on Russian television. It was completely new. They had one channel, basically, one channel. They never heard any criticisms, any open debate. And uh, anyway. That program was rebroadcast in prime time three nights in a row. And then we started, to, we did so many of them that at one point they passed a law that, that you couldn't do space bridges during working hours. Because nobody ever worked in Russia anyway, but you know, I mean, at least then they really stopped and they flew a television instead. Well, enough about Russia, let me move on. I could spend too long talking about Russia. The media had a huge role in preventing conflict which would have been devastating for the planet in, in between the United States and the Soviet Union. A huge role. And if you study the, the revolutions in Eastern Europe, television was absolutely central. Romania being the most um, blatant example of that, where the revolution was actually fought at the central television station, and that became the, the seat of government when Ceausescu was overthrown. But, but television played a key role in the Czech revolt, sometimes through I mean, the actual developed revolution, in a way, started because of a, of a rumor that was wrong. It was broadcast on television when a student had been killed. But you, you could study the media in, in Eastern Europe and see all those changes. But let me move on. We did things, same thing with the PL in Israel. Introduced put on about 15 space bridges from Tunisia, where the PLO was in exile in Israel, right around the time of the Oslo Accords. And, it, and all that went backwards, as it also went backwards in Russia. And I wish maybe I'll make a subsequent visit here and talk about the failures of media development. But we've gone backwards in a lot of these countries. Um, media is also very, very important in democracy and governance. I, um, if you look at the corrupt and authoritarian leaders around the world, they face what I would call the dictator's dilemma. They know that if they want to grow their economies and take advantage of globalization, they need to open their media. But they fear that a free press might overthrow them. So you take a so-called liberal dictator like Edward Shevardnadze in, in Georgia. To his credit, he allowed the development of independent television probably better than anyone in that area. But when his Ministry of Information, excuse me, his Ministry of the Interior tried to close down the most popular station after they exposed the corruption in the government, 10,000 people surrounded the station, Rustavi II, marched from the parliament, 
and the government fell. And the next year, then, similar thing happened. They inspired these color revolutions that happened throughout much of the region and also in Lebanon. In Pakistan, the same thing. In Pakistan, Musharraf, again to his credit, allowed free and independent media, television, radio. It's remarkable. By the way, the reason for it is kind of interesting. The reason was that um, when he launched his abortive military incursion in, uh, in Kargil, in, in Kashmir, it was a disaster for the Pakistani army. And everybody in the, on state television, all you saw was martial music and stuff. There was no real coverage of it. Everybody began watching cable television from India. And so they were getting, you know, they, they were watching the enemy's news broadcast of this humiliation of the, of the army. And uh, he realized that he couldn't change this bloated state television network that I think had 20,000 employees or something. Uh, so he allowed it private television. But again, the dictator's dilemma, once they let the cat out of the bag, what happened was when you had live coverage by GOTV uh, of, of an incident where every uniformed uh, general and head of, heads of the intelligence agency everything uh, fired and humiliated the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, a guy named Charles Reed, was shown on television, and it just ignited. The, and, and then there were riots, and, then they, and that was also covered live. And then the, the, the military came in. And same thing happened both in Georgia and Pakistan, by the way. When the, when the militia came in to close down the station in Georgia, or it came in to close down GOTV in Islamabad, they had the good sense to turn their cameras on live. And everybody had to see the cops coming in and smashing computers and stuff. And it ignited a revolution against Musharraf. In many of these cases, and I can, I can give you many more examples, but in, in many of these cases, what you have is an individual's humiliation. gets captured by the media and touches the collective shame of the country and ignites this revolutionary rage. Arab Springs is a perfect example. In Tunisia, you know, poor fruit vendor, Mohammed Bouazizi, self-immolates after he's humiliated and mistreated by a policewoman. A YouTube video on Facebook circulates, gets picked up by Mawashir, the Arab language, Al Jazeera's channel, broadcast to, to the region. Again, this revolutionary rage comes, and they overthrow Ben Ali. Same thing in Egypt. A young man, well, the, the police in Alexandria beat to death, hardly beat to death, this young man. And a Facebook page in his honor, We Are All Khaled Said, gets hundreds of thousands of followers, ends up being the kind of organizing force of all of the April 6th movement. They calls for a demonstration, people to march on Tugger Square. You know the rest of that. Shame is a hugely powerful force. I'm just looking at this quote from Karl Marx. I love this quote of Karl Marx. He says, shame is a kind of anger which is turned inward. And if a whole nation really experienced a sense of shame, it would be like a lion crouching ready to spring. It's a, that really captures the Arab Spring moment. And it happens over and over again in many places. And it happens on an international scale. 
And, and if I had more time, we, we could discuss this, maybe in the questioning period. Sometimes that's an international shame. When the media first covered the Fabin and Biafra, it led to this huge outpouring of support for the people dying in the famine, the same thing in Ethiopia. When finally the Lloyd um, Gutman's reports of the concentration camps that were happening in Serbia, uh, well, in, in Bosnia, in, in Srpska, caused finally the, the Western, for NATO to inter intervene. I wrote an op at the time, one of my wonderfully wrong prognoses, where I said, I use the example of Hama, the massacres, Assad's father's great massacre of 30,000 people in the city of Hama. I said, Hama could never happen again. Because people have cell phones with cameras, you know, there's going to be video, but Hama couldn't happen again. It, this is our shame. I feel that shame. This is horrible. We, we watch these atrocities happening. We watch chemical weapons being killed, 1,400 people killed, and the world does nothing. It's, it's just. It's incomprehensible to me, but maybe we, maybe it's just we get too much video. It's a, it's a huge question. Shame is a big issue. China and Burma, interesting example. In, on China, you have popular opinion is, is causing change from the bottom up. There's what I would call the network civil society. It's actually not my term. Um, guy named Hu, um, Yang Hu's term. He, you have this civil society happening, the network civil society happening on the internet and cell phones, where people are experiencing a degree of freedom that was completely inconceivable two decades ago. Now, netizens in China have not gotten political power, and, um, but they have a voice. And that's going to determine China's future, I think. There's a big debate. You probably know a lot about it between those who say, oh, everything's being censored in China, don't exaggerate, you know, there's all these tens of millions of blogs and texts really don't mean anything, it's never going to cause any change. And others say, no, this is the beginning of real change. Well, I think that debate is a little bit beside the point. There is a vibrant civil society happening in China. There are mass protests organized online in local communities that have stopped major multi-billion dollar development projects. Labor strikes are spreading through social media. Charitable organizations are proliferating on the internet. Even news and information, though it is censored in mainstream media, is proliferating through tens of millions of blogs and texts. So now, China is almost a classic case of the dictator's dilemma. And I think they're making a big mistake, which is, they haven't allowed the development of any alternative institutions that could mediate any great political changes. In Tunisia, you have labor unions playing a big role. And in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood was, you know, for while was actually playing a big role. In other countries, in Eastern Europe and whatnot, the church plays a big role. China does not. That no alternative institution that can do what like the jurists did in Pakistan. Burma surprised all of us, completely surprised all of us, by a revolution from the top. So there you have the dictator's dilemma. And they realized they had to open up their media. And they opened up all civil society. It's astonishing. 
I mean, maybe I'm naive, but I went there thinking, oh, this is a joke, this isn't for real, and it seems like it's for real. It just had a telecom competition that would be the ideal in the in the west in Western Europe. It was completely open, transparent competition. So Burma is trying to get out of the dictator's dilemma by a complete liberalization of society. So China's future is either going toward Burma eventually, or it's going to go toward Pakistan, I think. But right now, the the civil society that's happening inside the internet is fantastic. I would Media can also be a major force for modernization. Afghanistan being a great example. You know, you, I went to the, we built the first radio station in Logar province. I was there for the opening. And I watched these kids as we turned on the signal for the first time, you know, holding radio to their ears. They not only had never heard a radio, because the Taliban forbid, they had never heard music. They had only heard Quranic. Quranic um, verses. They had never heard music in their lives because it was forbidden. And it, the face on these kids was amazing. And now the version of Af Afghan Idol gets <laughs> voted on with 300,000 text messages. So, you know, it, and, and most importantly, we're talking in Afghanistan about cultural change, not just political change. Cultural change is the hardest thing to change, really hard. Television, radio, and internet is, is, is the only force capable of really making any kind of rapid change in culture. And, and this is particularly true about the role of women. Women are being, are being allowed to speak and debate, have roles on television that were not allowed under traditional Afghan culture. That we, we support a couple all-women owned and run radio stations. These things, again, were pretty inconceivable before. Finally, I would say that media has a under, uh, um, an important and not highly recognized role in development. If you go to Kenya, you really see a transformation there that's happening through digital media. A guy named uh, Batangi Endemo, uh, uh, who became the state secretary for information, uh, because nobody else understood the internet at the time, managed somehow to get a direct cable into, into uh, Kenya and vastly expanded internet use. 98% of internet use in Kenya is on cell phones. Very interesting. They skipped over the internet. So they just jumped ahead technologically. They leapfrog into the 21st century that way. And now a telephone call to Oxford that would have cost over $6 a minute costs less than two cents. And people, and, and, and a revolution in mobile banking is completely changing the economy of, of, of um, Kenya. They also have this open data initiative that's putting all government uh, documents online. Corruption is almost the underlying issue in every one of these citizens' movements we can talk about. There's something about government corruption, and, and one of the only ways you can really deal with it is to begin to put procurement data, things like that, online. Uh, excuse me for going late, but quickly here, but I, I, I really want to open it up for questions. Health, HIV, AIDS, you know, 
get rid of the stigmas. You've got to deal with information in people's local language by their local uh, presenters. The environment. James knows about the Earth Journalism Network that we started. Now has about 5,000 journalists, environmental journalists, 5,000 environmental journalists where there had been virtually none before in these developing countries. And so the amount of coverage of the of environmental issues has soared since you start getting local journalists. And James, I think James would agree with me that if you want to try to solve the problem of climate change, which is like the threat of nuclear war, only a little slower moving, you can't do it just by having the leaders of 200 countries meet together at a summit every once in a while. It's got to be from the bottom up also. If the people in Vietnam don't understand what's going to happen on their, to the rising sea levels on their coast, if they don't understand it, they won't give the political backing. No matter what their form of government is, there, there is something called political will that will always exist. If the people aren't educated about these issues that are going to affect them, they won't, there won't be the political will to make the changes that will be necessary to, to deal with these things. It's very important in the environment. Very, very important after emergencies. Information actually saves lives. Humanitarian organizations, and they're great, I love them. Oxfam, CARE, all those great organizations, they're like, their logistics systems are better than the US Army's. You know what? They don't ever consider talking to the local media. Who has the information when you go into a country? It's the local media. But nobody was, nobody was communicating with them. They're the ones who needed to, to hear from you and who needed to feed you back information. We began doing that in Aceh after the tsunami. Uh, first time, we gave cell phones out to local journalists, connected them all together, and, and, and then reported to the UN. In Haiti, for the first time, it was on a massive level. Uh, still not enough. It's, we're still in that transition. Haiti was a, a game changer where people, where the agency, the relief agencies began to see the role of media, local media. And now the United Nations has a department for, for that. So I, I want to stop because I've gone on longer than I wanted to go, but uh, I don't know if